with Matt Twyer. I'm Matt Twyer, everybody. And I won't lie to you, sometimes these intros, they sound really simple and they're quick and to the point. But uh, today, I, I'm, this is probably the seventh time I've started the intro because I want it to be perfect because I care so deeply about today's guest, Allie Ward. Um, she's a friend and then I'm also a fan. And it's weird that, you know, like you're longtime friends with somebody and then you just become enamored with their work and their smarts. <laughs> uh, she's just such a talented person. And I always knew this, but the pod, her podcast ologies really just, um, it affected my life personally. It's helped me grow as a human being. It's made me a, a better person. And I, I hope that my podcast also does that. And if you're a first time listener, I appreciate you giving this a try. You're probably here because Allie Ward suggested it. Um, I have a a library of a hundred and something, seventy something episodes. I've talked to some some legendary artists and activists and musicians, and uh, some fucking weirdos. <laughs> it's it's been the the show is people who I'm fascinated by or something is interesting. And today, Allie Ward, um, I would have to say, is one of the most um, interesting people I know, and I I just. Uh, love her work and I know I'm babbling like a star I'm almost babbling like I'm a huge fan who just met her in a mall and I'm speechless but that's how great I think Allie Ward is and uh, if you don't know who Allie Ward is check out her podcast Ologies it's uh, incredible it's it's one of the top if not the top science podcast in the world and it's funny it's uh, she's sometimes raw and it is just a blast. And like you, we talk about this in the episode, but sometimes you're like, I don't want to hear about, learn about this thing. And then you put it on and you're like, you're just in for the ride because it's funny, it's educational, and there's a story involved and it's just the best. So please check out her podcast. And she also has a show on Netflix right now called 100 Humans Life's Question, Questions Answered. And uh, that's all. I'm just going to, let's, get to the episode because it's awesome check out ologies if you if you haven't listened to it it's the best podcast in the whole world of the united states of the universe overjoyed also that this is audio and not video because that's what's better that way i'm Definitely have been wearing the sweatshirt for a couple of days, so it's yeah. better you can just. <laughs> I had the video on for two seconds, and then I was I, like, I I could I could physically feel my esteem dropping, like it was a physical. Because I like shaved my head, because you know what? Why okay. not? <laughs> why not? I mean, it's coming back, but it's just like I and. Ah, uh, you know, I kind of... I have a question on. about that. When you... Have you shaved your head before? No, I've always kind of wanted to do it. Yeah, me too. Do you... When you shaved your head, who did you feel like a, an external expression of? Did you feel like um, Demi Moore and G.I. Jane? Did you feel like Susan Powder? <laughs> did you feel like... Who did you identify with? Uh, 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 Telly Savalas? No, the worst. Uh, D'Onofrio in Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we, I think we all have this vision of if we shave our head, like who are we gonna feel like? Like, am I gonna, am I gonna feel like uh, Rose McGowan? Am I gonna feel like um, Mr. Clean? And I don't know when I shave my head who I would feel like. I, it's like Joan of Arc. I don't know. I got to think about that. I've always wanted to do that, but, um, it's weird. uh, Oh, I just, I was kind of always wanted to know what my scalp looks like, which is, I don't know if that's a normal curiosity. Yeah. I want to know what does it look like? Do you have zits on it? What happened? (laughs) Any weird scars you forgot about? (laughs) I want to know. I have, and I have like, uh, scalp issues. Not, not that I'm proud. Who doesn't? Yeah. Who doesn't? Don't feel ashamed. Okay. Well, I'm a, I'm Irish. I I tend to like alcohol. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's like I don't do anything to alter it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I. You know what? It, they even say that gluten intolerance can present itself in a flaky scalp. I've felt that way. I know that my scalp has better months than others. And I'm like, oh, what's going on with you? Do so you- yeah, I get it. I get the dry skin. Do you have the dry skin? Do you have gluten issues? I don't know. I mean, I eat it. I, I've, you know, I eat it all the time. But, um, but I, my skin was breaking out for a while, um, a few years ago, and so I gave up everything. Like, it, I just like lived this weird monastic life where I just ate like frozen vegetables from Trader Joe's and chicken because I was like, whatever will clear my skin up. And so, like, I gave up like dairy for a long time and gluten for a long time because I just was like, what is producing these face welts? And like, <laughs> like, what is it? And finally, it just went away. So, I don't know. So, I never figured it out. It's a mystery. I never figured it out. But my boyfriend has just the most explosive ass you've ever known. And so, he's <laughs> always giving things up to try and figure out what it is. This poor man is just like, Maybe yeah. we always give things up. Maybe we need to take more things up. Maybe he needs more yogurt. Very true. You have very a, true. You have a very handsome boyfriend. So to know his ass is explosive. Oh, I can God. feel my esteem going back up a little bit. Oh man, you have no idea. He's just he's old faithful, man. He's just <laughs> his lower half is just he's very he's very open about it. So I don't feel like I'm outing him in any way. But um, yeah, he calls it uh, doo doo ass. He's like ah. Oh, so did you ask today? So yeah, when we luckily, when I was looking for a house, I knew we'd live together and I was like, wherever I live, I'm going to need two toilets because <laughs> one is going to be occupied for half the day. <laughs> did this come up early in the dating? Cause I always feel, I've always thought like, what if you just put it all out there the first date and we're just like, Hey man, I'm gassy. <laughs> I think one thing I have learned from from him is like the other the other person will be as embarrassed as you are. So if you're not embarrassed, the other person isn't embarrassed for you. So the best thing to do is just put it out there without any shame. If you're like, oh my God, oh my God, I farted. I'm so sorry. The other person's gonna be like, oh God, I feel bad for you. And now I'm embarrassed for you. But if you're just, you know, if you're just yourself. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So yeah, he was early on. He was very open about it. I remember him telling me this story. I met him when he was a butcher. He worked in a butcher shop. Damn, that's him. And uh, I know, I know. It was like nine years ago, like it, you know, and from like head to head to tail butcher, um, like organic, sustainable, whatever. And um, and he had a story where once he was at the end of his shift, so he was uh, he had to change anyway because like you end up in like just blood soaked dickies every shift, and so he was like changing in the bathroom, and he was also on the toilet, and he uh, did not lock the door, and someone just walked into him fully naked on the toilet. <laughs> 
<laughs> at work. And so like, he's, uh, yeah. So he's like, what are you going to do? That's something that would mortify someone to the grave. But he was like, shrug, it's me. So yeah, so I've learned to be just more myself and less embarrassed. It's good. Oh, that is good. Was it the butcher shop on Fairfax? Yeah, yeah, Lindy and Grundy. I used to go there all the time. Yeah, he he may have served you a chicken. He, Who he, knows? He might have. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was bummed when that place closed. Yeah, I know, I know. It was a married couple, and they, they split up, and one of them remained a butcher, and the other is like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be a florist. I'm out of this. I'm out of the meat game. I'm out. But yeah, so Lindy and Grundy were, went their separate ways. But it's weird to think that I've known him for longer than they were together. But we broke up uh, several times, though, for years at a time and stuff. So and then we just got, we got back together a couple years ago. So, you know, we've had a storied life for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think that's good. Like a lot of people don't think you should get back together, you know, like, but it's like, yeah. it's just, I think if, if you're working it out, then it's, that's a good thing. I'm such a different person than I was then. And part of that is just being medicated, like, and him also being diagnosed and medicated with something where the things that made us a, a terrible couple at times have evolved, <laughs> like have, have uh, dissolved rather. And, um, and the things that were good have remained, but the parts that where we were just like, felt like um, we had no skin and we're just like all exposed nerves, like bumping into each other all the time. Like the, that part has gone away and we have weight. So we used to just constantly hurt each other because we were constantly too sensitive about certain things and insensitive about the other person, just partly having like an unmedicated anxiety disorder. And he didn't know he had ADHD until like two years ago. So those kinds of things were just constantly rubbing up against each other and misinterpreted. And, um, you know, I, I think I thought that symptoms of his ADHD were part of his personality or character. And I think same thing with my anxiety. And then when those things get diagnosed and medicated, you're like, oh, I'm not just really irritable and you're not inconsiderate. You know, those are just literally symptoms of something. So that's helpful. What can I say? <laughs> see a psychiatrist and see if, the, if anyone has relationship problems, see a psychiatrist. <laughs> oh, I feel like, uh, yeah, I was in... Th- heavy duty therapy for the past few years and I just like it was like one day there was I just admitted these things to myself and then like Mm -hmm. from that it was almost like AA where I was like I just never acknowledged these things and once I like addressed it and was like it was never a big deal again and like I feel yeah a normal well normal is uh, ish but you know are those air quotes did I just hear air quotes Oh, you just did? Yeah. I mean, you know, no one's ever, I'm still a fucking nightmare, but it's like, I'm not, uh, I'm not destroying myself in the process. Um, my boyfriend, Derek, he has a mental health podcast podcast and he, um, he and his friend made the theme song and the, um, one of the lyrics is I'm a normal person. So I'm insane, which is like very, um, it's called my good, bad brain. And it's just about like mental health struggles, but yeah, it's like, you're normal. So you're crazy. <laughs> like everyone is, but it's just, it's funny though. I think in our twenties and even into our thirties, um, it, like that boundary between knowing that you're still growing and you aren't yourself yet, you know, you're, you're in your teens, you're in your twenties, things are chaotic and you're like, I'm still figuring myself out. And then late twenties, early thirties, you're like, well, fuck, I should, I should have this on lock. And so you kind of take um, unresolved issues to be your character. And I think it's also really difficult when you see yourself 
um, as your symptoms, you know, like for me, my anxiety manifests in like, I get really irritable at myself when I am anxious. And I thought that I'm like, I am I, why am some days I'm so bitchy. And so like, uh, why do I feel like I'm not as patient on some days? And it took a while to be like, oh, that's literally just anxiety. And then like getting medicated for, I'm like, oh, I'm a way more patient person. (laughs) Like, and I guess I was underneath, but yeah, I don't know. It's like, uh, that I think, hopefully now people are living lives that are a little bit more examined, you know, but for a while it's just like, I suck. That's who I am. (laughs) Everyone sucks. But I mean, Callie's also like amazing. Did she, did you guys help discover things in each other too? She's the best. Um, thank you. She is the best. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. I apologize. It's crazy. I'm old and I have another baby. (laughs) We're both, her, I mean, she's 39 in a week or something. So it's like, um, Kelly's pretty, I've apologized often. I think she's always been more together than me. And I'm always just like, I'm sorry. I was a fucking idiot for the first couple of years. Like I didn't do anything horrible, but you know, like ego, I think I had a a lot of attachment to like old me and like, I took a job I hated for a while, which was, you know, I had to do because I was a parent and I was being responsible, mm-hmm. but it just made me miserable. And so yeah. I think in uh, my ego was like, I'm not this guy. So, yeah. And then finally, I don't know I, what a series of things happened and I just uh, realizations and, you know, Kelly's just been patient and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, and then we both have, like, pa- family issues that I think have, have um, made us crazy and insecure or whatever. And I think that we've been able to help each other through that, sort of navigate that and how that dictates our relationship. Because I think a lot of times we would, you know, like, not lash out, but we don't really fight. We've had a couple doozies. Mm-hmm. But I think we just, we have these voices in our head for, that came from our fa- families. Of course. And well, okay, here's, oh, I have a question about parenting. Should I ask it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. But you are in the middle of a thought. So oh, that's okay. No, first. it's fine. I think that Oh was my pretty- gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so eager. Um, okay. Question about parenting and, and like family, um, like, le- you know, legacy behaviors and stuff. Do you feel like since you've become a parent you've gotten to sort of like rewrite like family dynamics is that healing in a way it is and i we've acknowledged that that we've we've uh, that we are creating our own family to sort of heal our family Mm -hmm. situations and i think that's yeah i don't know if this sounds horrible but this is a part of the reason we had uh, our second kid, not like, I mean, we wanted to, Aww. and our sister wanted to have, or maybe wanted to have a sister, but mm-hmm. it was this, I, Kelly's mom lived with us for six months and it was, mm-hmm. it just jimmied all kinds of shit loose Yeah, <laughs> for I'm both sure. of us. Like it was really yeah. weird. And it like, I think once her mother left, we were able, we were like a, addressed these issues and like, mm-hmm. and that's when we sort of decided to have another kid and we just felt like m- ma- maybe it was a very healing and, um, and it's weird because then it's like, I started seeing the patterns of my p- parents and I started seeing also seeing, cause I th- thought my dad was a shitty dad for a long time and he had a lot of anger and aggression. And I just realized that it wasn't, he was never angry at me. He was just angry with where he was in life. And I yeah. was a, close to it. And that 
uh, you know, my parents actually tried, which, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know who's going to listen to this, <laughs> but, but, but <laughs> someone in my relationship, some of the parents didn't try. <laughs> yes. We'll just say someone and that's fine. It's fine. They'll never figure it out. But no, I mean, that makes such sense. And it must be, you must be able to sort of like look back and say, oh yeah, those times when I thought my maybe a parent was neglectful or didn't love me. Yeah. They just were under a lot of stress or dealing with their own shit. And, you know, this has been a kind of a theme, um, in quarantine, you know, when you're, especially if you're paired with someone or even just in general, if you're kind of like a a sensitive person and if someone is bummed out and you're worried, I don't know if you ever do this, but if someone is bummed out or, or not as responsive or something, you're like, fuck, did I do something to upset them? Are they, are they mad at me or are they just having a bad day? You know, that feeling where you're like, is it, did I do something? Um, and I think people who grew up with some codependency issues where they had to be like a really good kid in a, in a family home. So as not to like cause any waves, you know, um, I think, sometimes it's, it's tough to not understand what you caused and what you're just witnessing, you know? Yeah. I have. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I'm hyper alarmist. I get, I don't know if that's the right way, but my dad died when I was 13. I was a victim of a variety of abuse, not to brag, (laughs) but like, so I became very hyper aware of like seeking out seeing problems ahead of them happening. And yeah. Which is like off, often good because I can spot trouble. Like if I'm in a sketchy neighborhood or, mm-hmm. or, or like, you know, like when I was a bartender, I could, you know, I would, I could literally, somebody would walk in the door and I'd be like, that person's going to be a problem. Like, and I wow. was never wrong. Um, and I was thought, it usually cause they had a sword and, uh, <laughs> and something on fire crack pipe and what, yeah, but it was, <laughs> yeah. but it also like became, um, I would spiral. Uh, I would spiral. Like when we had, maybe I would start like, like I was just like certain somebody was going to abduct my mm. child. Like, mm-hmm. And I had to learn how to, uh, turn, turn a lot of that off and not to, to be more present because it, it allowed, because like if I was unemployed or something, if I lost a job, I would just be in sheer panic and fear oh for sure which by the, uh, I, oh. that makes us so much sense like of course who wouldn't be as a parent as a human who lost an income i mean that of course that spiraling spiraling seems super uh justifiable but you know and it's uh i the, the fear element because i and I think I've t- told you this because I used to text you while I'd listen to your podcast, which I didn't know if that was annoying or not because I do that. I love it. I love it. Are you kidding? It's, I mean, because a podcast you put out in the universe and I mean, thank God there's not like a comment section on podcasts like there is YouTube because I think that that makes YouTubers like incredibly neurotic um, because it's really horrifying to have your your like art criticized in real time by random unverified sources. So thankfully podcasts just get to live out there. And so if people text me listening to this, I'm like, Oh, it's out. Someone's listening. Oh, great. Yeah. So yeah. But your podcast literally like, and I would hope mine, like I used to, like we used to be pals, you and I, and then, mm-hmm. and now I'm like, you're kind of a hero to me because Mm-mm. No, your podcast, like the fear episode, the sleep episode, and then there's a number of others, but those two drastically affected the way I approach life. And I'm like, wow, that's like a powerful 
Oh. Do you have that feeling that you, do you get that from people a lot? Oh, that makes me all cry. Um, I get, I get a lot of really good, like, um, good comments. And I just always feel like it's, it's the, about the experts are changing people's lives. And I'm just like working the soundboard, but, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, if I just pass the mic, but, um, but you know, I hear people who are like, Oh, I, I had imposter syndrome. And so I, but hearing about other people with imposter syndrome made me, gave me the courage to apply to get my master's or to switch careers or, um, you know, got me through a breakup or whatever. And so I think what, what I love doing about it is just that I love being able to talk to people who have made these certain careers, their, like their life's work and to highlight how cool that is. <laughs> and like, just to highlight, um, like how people who are seem normal and just around us, uh, like have these vast areas of knowledge that they can help other people with. And I, I just think like there were, there's so many podcasts that are, you know, um, comedians interviewing actors or actors interviewing actors, and that's all great and amazing, but there are tons of just, you know, normal people that you would see in an airport who don't, you know, live in mansions and who aren't, don't have like a million followers on every social media outlet that are, have like life changing information in their brains. And so to, to put them on a pedestal is, was kind of part of the goal of ologies. It was like, I wanted to make scientists and, um, like rock stars, you know, just be like, look at how amazing this person is. And it's so great to hear like that these episodes can change the way people look at their own life. Cause I just feel like, um, a lot of times if there's not a product to sell or if there's not some way to make money off something, we're not like marketed toward things, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know what I mean? Like even, even meditation, like learning meditation is awesome. And there are some meditation programs that cost like thousands of dollars and I totally get it. It's completely worth it if you, if you use it, you know, but there's, but just being like, you can listen to a podcast and learn some stuff that changes your habits. is like, wow, that's great. You know? Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I mean, I, your podcast is stress and fear were like, uh, two things that dominated my, my, my life <laughs> and like to be able to, to put an understanding around it and it like it drastically. And then I even went back and listened to that episode a couple of different times because of I'd hit a hard time in my life and I'd just be like, all right, you're not being present and you just got to understand what's happening in your brain. Uh, uh, was that the fearology with Mary Poffinroth? Yes. How great is her name, by the way? Mary Poffinroth. Like, <laughs> She has hair. She has hair with pointy shoes and a tiny hat to help you. Did you <laughs> She's the best. You most most of your guests or all of your guests. Like I have never heard, and because you think like, and because I interview similar types of people who aren't. Uh, yeah, I love your podcast. I love it. I was just talking about. It. We walked the dog this morning before this, and I was uh, I was telling Jared about it. I was like, "It's and you're you do such a great job interviewing. Uh, it, you're yeah, I love I love this podcast. Well, like yeah. I don't deserve to be on it, but I love it. You do deserve to be on it. But a lot of the, like a lot of the people aren't savvy to you know they're not used to being interviewed or they're rarely interviewed. Some are very savvy, but some are just you know folk who did some things and yeah, and it's like. Uh, Fuck, I forgot where I was going with it. But a lot of it, too, it's like these people, it's like, you know, none of them, like I've had people be like, I'm not on Twitter, so it's not going to really get anybody. And I'm like, that's not why I'm doing this. I want to, like, right. make, put put you, a, make you, a, people need to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And I think that what I hope it does is I hope it makes people more curious about the people around them in general. Um, you know, I hope that if dinner parties ever reemerge in our culture and society, um, they'll ask questions of someone next to them that they wouldn't think to ask. Um, and you know, I remember someone like early on in the podcast in the Facebook group was like, you guys, I matched with someone on a dating app who's an ologist. She's like a real ologist. She's a microbiologist. And, you know, I'm really nervous. I'm really excited. So they went on this date and he had listened to an episode on glycobiology. And so he, she mentioned something about her lab work and he mentioned glycobiology and she was like, Oh, really? Anyway, they're engaged now, which is so <laughs> cute. And, um, and I just love the, the idea when someone's like, Oh my gosh, my cousin's an ologist. Like this notion of an ologist being like, Ooh, this is a person you could ask, ask stupid questions to is, um, like I, I want people to see scientists in a different way. So often we think of scientists as someone in like a lab coat that's here to, to scream at us about being stupid or um, is really inaccessible emotionally or boring. And so this notion that like scientists who study frogs are like out there, like losing a flip-flop in a swamp and like getting lost and like, um, you know, naming their frogs when they're not supposed to. And, you know, just having these very real human moments, I feel like just makes it so much more accessible. And, these people have stories for days, dude. Like this chiropterology um, episode with Merlin Tuttle, it's all about bats. And this guy's like the, one of the foremost bat experts in the world. And, um, you know, just a regular guy named Merlin Tuttle living in Austin. <laughs> just so many, how many Merlins do you know? I have so many Merlins in my phone, but this one's Merlin Tuttle. But he's got these stories about like getting stuck in caves and having to make friends with moonshiners in order to have access to the bats in their caves that they were distilling in. Like he's got so many crazy stories. And so it's just fun to, um, it's fun to get those stories out and to make, yeah, make science and knowledge just more fun and weird. But I, I mean, I, I feel like making ologies was a huge turning point in my life because I was a little bit afraid to, um, I, I don't know. I think I was afraid to make, to put my own voice out there because what if it was, you know, too gross or too weird or whatever too like geeky and people were annoyed by it. And so doing ologies and having people respond to it in a way that like is favorable it, at least is like, Oh, that's really reassuring to know that I can be myself more just in my normal life, you know? Um, cause I, you know, I had done, I, I hadn't really like done, been able to do that before. Cause even, you know, in TV, I have to read a lot of scripts that other people write and I have to, um, you know, keep it clean on TV. And so this was a way where I felt like I could kind of just be much more raw and to have it not fail was like, wow, I could be more raw in general. That's good to know. You know, the writing on your podcast, like your pieces, I mean, it's always very clever and entertaining. I was Aww. impressed by that from the get go. And I, cause I didn't, um, I was always curious of your sort of your history of how it led up to the podcast and science, because I know you were, a re weren't you a reporter for the LA times? Like, or am yeah. I, like, which yeah. is also reporters is another thing that fast. Like I've, I half my life. I've been like, <laughs> I should have been a fucking reporter. Like I should have oh, been. Oh, wow. You'd be great at it. You'd be great at it. <laughs> 
I can't. Seriously. I used to go to the old man um, newspaper bar in Chicago and like. Oh, and, oh my and God. I, really? Yeah. It's like this. It was like across the street from the tr- uh, Chicago Tribune. Yeah. And it's like, it's the Billy Goat Tavern. It's like infamous. <gasps> and it's, what does it smell like? Uh, well, it's under. Cigars, like, barf. Like what, what kind of odors are we talking about in the Billy Goat? Well, they make cheeseburgers. It, it's like a <laughs> okay. famous cheeseburger place. So it's always, and it doesn't, it's not smoky anymore, but it was like okay. for, when I was younger, it would be very smoky, like cigarettes and cigars. And then of course, stale beer mm-hmm. and, and the smell. And it's like, you walk in cause it's under Michigan Avenue. So if you go down, you have to go down these stairs and it's like in this weird dark underground, under a street basically. Oh wow. It, yeah. And it's, and so you go into this bar and it's been there since fuck, I don't know how long, like Royco would write his column and, and Royco was a early hero of mine. Oh I, my God. I actually saw him step out of there drunk once. And that was like, <gasps> it was like, to, for me, it was like seeing John Lennon. <laughs> like it was, oh my God. Like it, Cause I read him as, I was like, I was like a weird kid who read news columns. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my like, God. It's this magical, like weird old guy. And it's like still a newspaper bar and, Pickles. It smells like pickles. The best. Yeah. The oh, same bartender was there for like a thousand years. But it was like, yeah, it smelled like stale beer, pickles, onions, and <laughs> frying frying meat. I'm sure a little um like old like brute and old spice and uh and oniony armpit sweat a little bit. Yes. Like nervous pit sweat, you know, that like oniony nervous sweat if it's reporters. But you know what's cool is um so LA Times, you know, downtown for Spring and First Street forever. And uh and the Redwood is the is their version of the Billy Goat. So the Redwood is um is downtown in Los Angeles. And that's where all the all the newspaper folks would go to to go get drunk and write and stuff. And they have a phone, they have like a red phone there, apparently, where that was like a direct line where they'd be like, is someone there? Send them back. We got a scoop. <laughs> <laughs> like they had like a direct, like the red phone. They had like a bat phone in the Redwood. Um, and then the LA Times moved to someplace like right off LAX, which bums me out so it much. It bums but, me um, out too. Ugh, sucks. Because it's just like, I, I mean, I so I started at the LA Weekly though. And I was like, um, and that's kind of how my how I started writing. And I use reporter like you use normal, like heavy air quotes. Like it's like in a, if there was a font for me being a reporter, it would be like air quotes bold italic. But that's only because like I was more of a like nightlife and culture reporter. And so my my dad uh, was a journalist, and he went to he essentially studied journalism. He was um, a longtime radio reporter, and so we would grow up. He was a news director at KGNR Radio in Sacramento. So growing up, we would like you know at dawn eat oatmeal and. Um, and we always drank lemon lift tea, which I found out later is like pretty caffeinated. And it's really funny that my mom would like send us off to school, like caffeinated as children. Like, I don't think, I don't think she realized that this lemon tea had caffeine in it, but, um, so we would drink lemon lift and eat oatmeal and listen to my dad on the radio. And, you know, he would be reporting everything from like the Iran Contras to like accidents and stuff, but we would listen to my dad. <clears throat> and, um, my sister, my older sister, Celeste, grew up to be a reporter also. And she was a crime reporter. So she would attend autopsies and funerals and she would be at the scene of crimes. Um, for a while, she dated a photojournalist. So they, they, it's crazy. It's, it sounds like a 
such a, a procedural show, but they would go and he would take pictures of accidents and she would report on it. And, um, and eventually she kind of got PTSD from that and was like, I'm out, had married someone else who's the love of her life and had kids. And, um, and she's still a journalist, but she works more in marketing and stuff. She doesn't have to like stand by the edge of the Delta and watch people, you know, like dredge up duffel bags full of body parts, which was a, like a Tuesday for her. And so for me calling myself a reporter, cause I was like, I went to an art gallery show and I think this one is a little bit less, uh, you know, um, realism based and more modern. Like <laughs> that's not reporting in my family, you know, like, um, I wasn't breaking anything like they were, but, um, <clears throat> I did grow up in this family where it was like, I remember once I heard my mom screaming from the other room. I was probably 13 and I was terrified. Um, and I thought like some, she got terrible news or maybe we won the lottery. I don't know what it was. And I rushed in and it's like, what's the matter? And she's like, look at this. And there was a typo in the newspaper. It was like a there, there <laughs> problem. Oh, what? Ew. How? Just, I read about it. Um, my mom loves to catch typos on uh, menus, newspapers, signage. She was a copy editor for a while. So my family is like, uh, even in our family group texts, like if you make a spelling error, you usually will go asterisk, correct it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> come from like a journalism family. And so, um, and so I never thought that I would be a journalist ever, ever, ever. I went to film school and I studied biology. I always loved science and I always loved like photography and writing and, and like theater and stuff. But I didn't know, I was like, should I go into entertainment or should I go into biology? I loved both of them, but I didn't feel like I, I, I wasn't really able to choose. And I went to, um, my undergrad, I studied biology and, uh, and I also studied film. And so I ended up with a degree in film and kind of like a, like an, uncompleted minor in bio. And then I started working in TV and film and I really loved that. And I was acting and in a bunch of shows that are super embarrassing. And um, <laughs> let me, like, what's one, give me one show that's super embarrassing. Oh Jesus. What's the, what's the worst cop show you can think of? Uh, cop rock. Oh no. God, I wish. I think that would have been probably Do you probably remember cooler. cop rock? Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, it was like a musical, right? It was a musical. Yeah, it was like, it came out in the early 90s, I think. And it was just like baffling. But it was the guy who did like... Uh, Dick, Hill, was it Dick Wolf? I, no, I think it's the guy who did it like uh, Hill Street Blues and... Oh, was like, I bet I bet that show can fuck. I bet it's still pretty good. I bet uh, we should watch it. I think I should watch an episode, <laughs> but it's... No, we'll, I'll come over. We'll de yeah. after quarantine and we'll do a pizza... A hundred percent. Pizza. <laughs> but that show is so horny. That sounds like a show that Jarrett would probably love. Like just so many goatees in it. So many goatees. Um, uniforms and goatees. Mm. Uh, no, it wasn't that bad, but like... Um, I was on a show called Nash Bridges. Oh yes. Which, I just, I just pulled up your thing. Oh boy. People would always get it confused with Walker, Texas Ranger for good reason. It was like same, it was like chicken and Turkey, you know? Like, mm, yeah. But you got Cheech Marin and Don Johnson. That's pretty. I uh, know. I know. It was great. And, uh, back then it was like the only show shooting in San Francisco where I lived. And so I was really lucky to get like a recurring part on that and 
got me my SAG card and stuff. But I moved on to LA and I would be doing like bit parts and WB shows and, um, or procedurals where I would get beaten up or my fiance would have killed someone. And, um, and I got mugged in real life at knife point by a couple of guys. And I just didn't want to act anymore because all of, and especially that time and like the aughts, early aughts, a lot of the shows that would be casting would be like, here's a, let's, let's victimize a woman as, as a crime subplot and use her for one episode. And so like a lot of the things I would go out for would be like, you're going to get like sexually assaulted on a Navy ship. And I would be like, I'm, I have like, a lot of trauma from getting robbed in real life with knives. And so I just didn't want to do it for entertainment for anyone else. I just felt like as a woman, um, it wasn't something that I wanted to put out there. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be like entertainment fodder, um, as a, as a woman being victimized. I just didn't, I thought it wasn't a a good use of my voice. So I stopped acting and I, and I kind of fell apart because I was like, what the fuck am I going to do now? Like I was catering. Like I always had a catering job. Like that's how I made sure I made rent. But, um, I was like, I, I don't want to act anymore. This has been something I wanted to do forever. And I just don't want to try to drum up a bunch of tears getting raped for other people's enjoyment. Like I don't want to do it. That statement and so, is just so absurd. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you come I mean, down to it, I never thought yeah. of it. Like when you, cause so many, I don't watch those shows, but it is, it's like, what the fuck is wrong with us that we mm-hmm. are so obsessed with this? And yet, cause I worked in standards and practices for a while, something I'm oh. so ashamed of. <laughs> that, no, that was no. the job I was talking about earlier where I was yeah, like, I'm big- <laughs> cause it's like, I was like the, at second city. And then as a comedian, people were always like, Oh, Dwyer dark with his dark humor. <laughs> and then it's like, suddenly I'm telling people that, you know, that's too much butt cheek hanging out. Yeah. A, but like, I was like infuriated all the time because there were, the violence was totally acceptable, but like the, the weirdest, like, right. even, like slightly sexual thing, comment or whatever was like, no, 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 no. But you could be like, yeah, he severed his head and like, and yeah. raped and ra- I was like, why is anyway, I, that was a bit tangential of a tangent, but no, it's still, it's it like, makes total, it's good. It's super applicable here because it is, it is kind of weird. And also, um, those character arcs were literally disposable. They were, they were procedural. So from episode to episode, you would hear about one, you know, hear about this character's story as kind of an afterthought. And usually as a victim, the victim was kind of the, um, I don't know. I, in Latin, when you, when you like conjugate things, it's like direct object and object, like um, indirect object. But yeah, like the, the victim was like this indirect object. And then the, the object that you were really focused on was the killer, you know? And so it just it didn't, it didn't sit well with me. It was such a, it was a tended to be a passive role to explain, you know, what's happening and if they're, you know, if it's going to be a gotcha this week. And I just didn't, I didn't want to go through it. I didn't want to relive trauma for entertainment. I couldn't, I didn't think also like that was good for victims, you know? And so I just was like, I'm out. And I started getting really into painting and I would, um, I would pick up pieces of wood off the side of the road and then I would paint them. And I just was really liking that. It was kind of like biological illustration, but, um, but also with like kind of cartooning. And so I would just paint on scrap wood. And, um, I started reading the LA weekly at that time, like the LA weekly was 
what you would go to for like an alternative news source. Like it wasn't owned by Republicans yet. And it was still like a really great ragtag group of reporters and, and artists and stuff. And, um, and I really wanted to illustrate for them. And I called them up and I was like, Hey, um, I would love to illustrate for you. Who do I talk to there? And the receptionist is like, we're not really taking, you know, submissions, but thanks. I was like, okay. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, I saw that the creative director, his last name was Ward. And I was like, holy fuck. Okay. Weird, weird, cool. So I called up and I was like, hi, uh, can I talk to Ryan Ward? And they're like, who's calling? And I was like, oh, it's Allie Ward. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Which was not a lie. No. <laughs> that was my name. It was not my fault that they inferred that I was a close relative or his wife <laughs> or whatever. So they put me straight through and I was like, hi, um, I really want to submit a portfolio. My last name's Ward too. Isn't that working? probably related. Who knows? Probably not though. And I was like, I would really, when I called earlier in the reception said, you weren't taking submissions, but I really would like to, isn't it weird? Again, my last name was working. I send you stuff. And he was like, Ooh, okay. So I emailed him some illustrations and he sent it on to Lori Ochoa, who was the, the time, the editor there. And, um, who was Jonathan, Jonathan's gold, Jonathan Gold's wife, she later was at the LA Times. And um, and I remember getting an email back saying that Lori liked my illustrations. And I was like, holy fuck. So I got to illustrate for them. And then um, they needed someone to go do a, a random music review. Uh, someone who was supposed to review a Tegan and Sarah concert wasn't able to go. And I fucking love Tegan and Sarah. So they're like, Ward, you in? And I was like, sure. And I, I wrote a review and they ended up liking it. And so then they gave me a column for a while. Um, and then I ended up moving to the LA times cause the LA times offered healthcare. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, so yeah, so that's kind of how my journalism career started. But I remember I've told this story before, but my, you know, my sister Celeste, who was the reporter and my other sister Janelle is an amazing writer too. Um, but uh, Celeste, I was, she read my first published story ever, this Tegan and Sarah review. She was like, the lead is really good. And I was like, what's the lead? And she was like, that's like your, the first sentence in a newspaper article. And I was like, is that what that's called? And she's like, <laughs> yeah, dude. But I remember being like, I have such imposter syndrome. I didn't go to journalism school. I've just read the paper a lot. And she's like, listen, if the custodian turned in good copy, he would, they would be a reporter there. Like they don't care where you come from. Like if you, if you can turn in good copy, literally, and I was pretty much like a custodian, you know, like they're like, yeah, if, a, if anyone who can turn in good copy, um, you know, is, is valuable. So don't question like your background, just do good work and you're good, you know? So that's kind of how I started in, in reporting and, you know, the, it was a weird synthesis, but, uh, and then I got into broadcast journalism because it was kind of like all of the fun and, and doing, you know, cooking channel stuff. It was like the fun of being on a set and performing with none of the, uh, simulated rape, which I liked. It's like, this is great. When you go into a news station and talk on the morning news, no one pretends to kill you. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't have to cry or anything. Amazing. <laughs> and how did you get into, cause the, because the science podcast came after, I forget, you have a show on CBS. Mm -hmm. And that's a science-based show, right? Yeah, Innovation Nation. Yes. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Because Kelly loves that show. Because Kelly loves... Oh. Oh, I gave Kelly uh, your t-shirt for Christmas and oh. I, a couple years ago, and she literally wept. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like I... Because, you know, I think there... I don't know. It's like 
part of it was she was so happy to have it. And I also I think she she was like, you listen to me. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I'm going to have to send you some merch. I'll send you guys a care package. Um, But uh, but did did were you planning to do the science podcast all along? Was that something that you because it seemed to be immediately or maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like the podcast was immediately gangbusters and like everywhere or maybe I'm crazy. No, I mean, I, I, I sat on it for a while. Like, um, what had happened was, you know, I was doing, um, I was doing cooking channel stuff, you know, with Georgia. And I think that it was really fun when it started, but I think we both really started to burn out with it because, um, you know, you can only eat so many donuts, like force feed yourself like a gravage goose, like so many (laughs) donuts before you're just like, this is not this reaction to this donut is not real anymore. And so I think we both were really kind of burned out and we both just had other interests, you know? And unfortunately I, I didn't share her, her enthusiasm for true crime. It was a little bit harder for me, um, cause of my background, you know, and, uh, and so I, you know, wasn't a great partner to go in that direction. And, and, you know, I think I geeked out on science a little bit more than she did. So I think, um, you know, we both just did things that we were more interested in, which I think is a good lesson that whatever you're truly interested in is going to be a little bit more successful for you than stuff that you're faking, you know? Um, and I always really liked science and I felt like I was really getting away from my science stuff. And I went through a really tough time. It was 2013, the summer of 2013, my dad had been diagnosed with, uh, with, blood cancer, multiple myeloma, which he still has. And my uncle uh, had the same disease and he had just died from it. Um, and my, and Jarrett and I were broken up. We went through a really, really difficult breakup and he had, he had kind of a little bit of a mental breakdown and, um, and it was really difficult to watch him go through that. It was really harm, harmful for me to watch him go through that. And we had some suicidal ideation. It was really, really tough. And it wasn't a healthy place for, for me to be in, but I also, you know, cared about him a lot. So we broke up for a while and I was just really fucked up. I was just, you know, I had a, a show on Cooking Channel and I was in Cosmopolitan Magazine and magazine spreads and press stuff. And, you know, it should, everything looked very rosy, but I was like bawling every day, like five times a day, just about my dad and about Jared and all this stuff. Um, I was really, I was really having a hard time. And so I started volunteering at the natural history museum. A friend of mine gave me a tour. Um, and I said, man, this place just cheers me up so much. I feel so grounded here and it really gets me out of my head. Um, you know, just showing people where the bathrooms are and talking to a kid about a lizard. It just got my, got my mind off of, um, some stuff that was just, people that I love very much were going through that I couldn't control. You know, I can't control, um, someone else's mental health and I can't control my dad's cancer. I can be there to support, but I can't do, you know, control these factors. And so it felt really good to get to just be at the museum. And so she's like, you should volunteer here. And I was like, uh, sure. You know, like, what do I have to contribute? And also like a regular schedule thing is not something I had in my life, but I ended up doing it and going in every Wednesday morning, you know, from whatever, 8.30 until noon and just wearing a vest for $0 an hour and just, you know, being in the discovery center. So if kids had questions about bugs, I would be like, okay, well, that's a beetle grub. And, you know, um, and it really it really helped so much to just get 
to be in a new set and setting. And so, um, my friend Andy Hall, he's a, he's a editor and he was working on some shows that Linton was making who make the, um, innovation nation. And they were looking for someone to be a science correspondent. And he was like, well, Allie's done TV and she's loved science as long as I've known her. And she, you know, she is volunteering at this museum. So they brought me in for an interview and we ended up really clicking. And so that's how I got innovation nation. So that was kind of a nice segue into that kind of thing that felt more me. And then doing ologies, I'd always wanted to do, it was like this idea I'd had for 15 years. And I thought maybe I'd make a book out of it. I pitched it as a TV show and was told like, eh, it's, uh, nah. <laughs> so I was like, ah. <laughs> so like, uh, I remember I pitched it to a producer when we were at the Emmys we had just won an Emmy for Innovation Nation. And I was like, hey, now seems like a good time to pitch you a show about ologies. And I remember he was like, nah. <laughs> I was like, fuck, <laughs> you can't do it. Well, you literally just won an Emmy like 15 minutes before. When are you going to sell a show? I want to take this moment right now to thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, you can become a Patreon subscriber. At patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer, you'll find bonus episodes, commentary on every episode, blogs, videos, pictures. Just become a subscriber. It's a great way to help me keep the show going. If you can't be a subscriber to Patreon and you want to help the show, do me a favor and tell some friends about the show. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to support the show. Or you can go to iTunes rate the show, give it five stars, write a review, and I'll read it on the uh, podcast, and subscribe. That helps me with the old uh, podcasty numbers. And if you like my podcast, listen to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine or Kilgallen's Pub with Joe Kilgallen. Also, don't forget to go to themattdwyer.com. That's a jumping off point for all things conversations with Matt Dwyer. You can find merch on there, links you to my Patreon and social media. Why don't you buy a t-shirt? What the heck? Why not? Now back to the interview. And also I think they had free Chardonnay, so I probably wasn't pulled in, but, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, uh, so then, yeah, the idea of doing it as a podcast became something I was like, Oh, I could do that. I could, I could make that. And no one could tell me make the interviews shorter or you can't talk about dingleberries or like, don't, don't talk about clams fucking like that. We don't want it. You know? So I was like, well, there's no other, science podcasts in like the top 10 that have swearing in them because they're all like NPR. So I was like, well, that's either for a reason and that's a really bad idea because kids need to listen to stuff or just do what I want to do. So I just made it for adults because I felt like so much science content is for kids and adults like are kind of thereby told like science, nah, don't worry about it. Like, unless it's a requirement to graduate, don't worry about caring about science. And meanwhile, science is like everywhere. The science is in like how your coffee works and science is like why you killed your cactus and like the science is in like who you fall in love with and why you get sweaty palms. And like, there's science and all that. It's just, it's just shit. That's just how life works. So it's like, make it interesting to people who aren't nine, you know? So I was like, well, okay, I'm going to do this. And I, and I, um, started doing the interviews and I got the, the handle. I like the fact that ologies, Instagram.com 
slash ologies was available. I was like, fuck, oh my God. Okay. This is amazing. So I got that. I got the Twitter handle. And for nine months, I was trying to put that, I was like tinkering with it. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I think it's maybe too, is it too boring? Is it too detailed? Is it not detailed enough? Are scientists going to hate this? It's going to be too far over layman's heads. And um, I just, for like nine months, people were like, dude, when are you making like a podcast? I was like, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And um. And then I got a message from someone on Instagram saying, hey, this really big science YouTuber talked about wanting to make a podcast about ologies. And I was like, oh, wow, no, I've been scooped. And I was like, fuck. And so I put out a trailer that night just just to pee on it. Because I was like, I've been working on this for so long. I've tweeted about it. I've, I've gotten the handle. Like I have pictures up on the Instagram already. Like someone else either got the same idea or didn't realize that they had seen it in passing and thought it was theirs. And I was like, no. So I did it. And then I wrote to that YouTuber and I was like, hey, just so you know, I'm like so worried. I saw, I heard that you were planning on doing this. And just so you know, I've done like six interviews. I've been editing. I have the handles. I have the artwork. Like I'm just about to launch this thing. And he was like, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm too lazy. I probably won't do it anyway. <laughs> Thank God for laziness. Oh my God. Cause I was like, dude, do you not, we have mutual friends. Have you not seen any of my tweets? But if, you know, sure he hadn't, but yeah. And so, um, in the first episode that went out, it was with, um, at the time, Feral Audio. And somehow they mistakenly uploaded um, an unedited version. So all of my asides, all my theme music, all my all my like sound drops, like none of them were in there. So like my very first episode was a raw interview, um, which I was mortified because I had worked like a hundred hours on this first episode. <laughs> and so I had to like tell, I had to like t- take it down and tell everyone, I'm so sorry. That wasn't what you were supposed to hear. That was like the, the raw file, like redownload it. And I was like, I was like, well, there goes my career. I thought that was the analogies, but it turned out people were like, okay. And then just redownloaded it. So yeah. Were like, you doing all the editing yourself? Cause it's an oh intricate, my God, yeah. really, uh, that's fucking, cause I, had to learn after Farrell I didn't podcast for two years because when Farrell went down yeah and then I was finally I was just like all right stop being an asshole and learn how to do this and I couldn't imagine doing that detailed of editing (laughs) oh my god oh it was so many YouTube tutorials on like how to use GarageBand oh it was so it was so hard and luckily the first the first couple um also, my friend Jason Scardamalia, who's like this really, really good composer. Um, hold on a second. Grammy is eating something. Okay. Do you, I don't know. I know you've got a dog, but um, earthworms. Yeah. Do you ever? Do they ever eat dried earthworms? Because I feel like that is beef jerky to dogs. <laughs> oh <laughs> no! I, yeah, two days ago, my dogs both were eating poop. Oh, they love it. And Charlie was walking around with a big dried turd where he, it looked like a cigar. Like he looked like he was a sports writer. <laughs> but it was also vile. Like it it was like hilarious, but it also almost made me vomit. Like it was just, it's, it was the worst. Oh my God. He looked like, uh, he looked like uh, the insult dog. <laughs> Let me tell you something, kid. <laughs> Just and it was like big. He was just like trotting because he was going to go hide <laughs> under the bush that he likes to hang out in. And he was just like trotting like he was like so excited, like, oh, man, I'm going to go down on this, no. go to town on this snack. And I was just like, no, it's totally. the biscotti. It's biscotti for dogs. It's turds. Oh, they're like, soak this in a little 
Cafe. No, I think that Grammy, uh, I just saw her eat a dried earthworm on the porch and she just looked like she was like mm, Slim Jims. Oh, I was like, no, like... Grammy, don't. But I mean, protein, probably. I think she's fine. For a dog, I could see that. I mean, I would be okay with with that, I guess. I think it's fine. Beats, she's fine. Beats she an old cat it. turd. Yeah, it definitely beats an old cat turd. Less probiotic, but um, oh, but yeah, but editing. He, the the best pro tip I can give anyone is uh is if you're using GarageBand and it's frustrating you, and if you can possibly scrap together a hundred and ninety nine dollars for Logic, it's the same as GarageBand, but. In the one big perk is when you delete a section, it will shuffle everything to fill the gap. So you don't have to do it by hand. And that is like worth $200, even if you just use it one time. Because <laughs> it's like GarageBand, like moving all these pieces over oh, and then over and you overlap them just a little bit. And then you clip one and you're like, oh my God. So yeah, GarageBand is the free version. And $199, if you're going to start a podcast, it's like, that's what you should that. That's so worth it. But yeah, my friend Jason helped me with the EQ um, on the first couple. But yeah, I was just hand doing it for the first like six months. And then I I got a Patreon um, and I was able to pay Stephen Stephen Ray Morris to help me edit, which was huge. And um, and yeah, he still he still helps me edit. Um, And we and I have a super like intricate process for it now. But um, I. I run my interviews through a transcription program called Temi and I get a transcription, which is like if Siri were to transcribe a conversation, like there's a ton of errors, but it, it gets a lot right. And it's helpful to know like, okay, this is at minute 17, we started talking about dingleberries or like the, we talked about poop cigars at, you know, minute 43 or whatever. It really helps you figure it out. And then, um, I do what's called redlining and I, I highlight in a Google doc, read everything that gets cut. And now Jarrett does that part because, um, it's super time intensive. And so I have, um, I have Steven, I just gave Steven like a raise to work on less stuff because it was so time intensive. <laughs> and I was like, um, so I have, I, they both help me now. Um, and yeah, so anything that gets cut from an, um, to a whole paragraph to whatever it gets redlined. Um, Jarrett works on cutting all that stuff. And then everything that is an aside where I like have voiceover where it's like, okay, I look this up and it turns out this and this and this, that's all written in green. And I write that ahead of time. And then anything that I want as a sound effect, I put in yellow and I find a clip or a drop. Um, and I put that in with time code to tell Steven, okay, I want, you know, 38 through 41 of this YouTube clip put here, da, 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 fade up, da, da, da. And then, um, and he also surprised, surprises me and puts in stuff sometimes too, which is awesome. Um, and so then that's the doc. And then they both work from that. Um, uh, Jared does the first pass, cuts everything that needs to go. And then, uh, and then Steven puts in all the additions and I record all my VO and I, um, and I edit my VO so it's clean, uh, you know, so he can just drop them in. And that's how, that's the, how the fucking sausage gets made every week. <laughs> how like, many, once it's done, once you're done recording, how, how long does it take to get one episode together? It's it totally depends. Like there are times when I've done a recording on a Saturday and it's up by Monday because it's like a super timely episode. Um, but a lot of times I start working on it like on Thursday and then 
uh, I get the asides to Steven by like Sunday, sometimes Monday morning, if I'm a real piece of shit. And then he edits on Monday, he tosses them all in, he sends me the first draft. And then I send him notes on that first draft. So I'm like, eh, actually, this drop was annoying. Let's cut it. Um, can we actually cut this part? This aside was unnecessary now that I listened to it. And so I, I sent him a, a first pass of notes. He cuts them and then he uploads it. And so we're usually working on it like on Monday. <laughs> so like, um, but yeah, so he works probably like 10 hours a week on it. Jarrett works probably like two hours a week. Um, and then I work like 50, <laughs> not that much, not that much. I I've gotten it. I'm gotten a lot faster now, but yeah. Um, I wanted, cause earlier you mentioned something about making science, uh, interesting for adults. Why do you think because uh, uh, Kelly got me into science. She's like total science nerd and like her f- excitement about things uh, mm. s- definitely stoked my curiosity about it. Not that I wasn't not curious, but uh, she definitely has me more interested in it than I ever was. Why do you think people are so hesitant or like wh- what? Why? What? No, that's a good question. I think that we get, I think it's like kid science is not enough information and like adult science is too much. So I think like, I think the biggest thing is making it relatable because who gives a shit about anything if you can't relate it to your own life? You know, I think we even care about like, like the Royals because we're like, Oh, it turns out that the brother-in-law doesn't like the new sister-in-law. Like, (laughs) okay. Like we give a shit about that because we apply it to our own life. You know, like people look at, you know, Kate Middleton and they're like, "Mm, I've been criticized for what I've worn before. And that's why I relate to this or whatever. Like we can relate to people who have a life that is completely unlike ours. Um, because like human beings want to learn from stories, you know, like we want stories because I think that whether you're watching like a cooking show or whether you're watching, yeah, like a procedural Dick Wolf show or whatever, you're watching it because you want to take away something that will help you later. You know, um, even if you're never going to make that chili or you're never going to be in that situation where like, okay, I got another thing in my, in my backpack. And so I think that when you present science, like the, the the angle of a rainbow is always blah, blah, blah. You're like, so fucking what? Like, how does that apply to my life? Um, but if you can make science relatable to where people feel like they'll use it again, I think it's, I think it's cool. I think it's the same reason why, like, if if your mom were like, I cleaned out the cabinets, do you want this cookie jar? And you're like, I'm never going to use that. No. But if your mom's like, I cleaned out the cabinets, I have an extra crock pot. And you're like, oh, shit, I do want to make, I do want to roast some pork. Then you'll use it. Then you want it, you know? So I think it's like making science interesting where it's like, okay, someone will never see a crow the same once they know that that crows have funerals and that sometimes that they engage in weird necrophilia at a funeral. Why do they do that? We don't know, but you're never going to look at a crow the same or that you remember (laughs) that, you know, like, uh, you know, if we have a tree expert on and they talk about how trees communicate to each other to warn of like beetle infestations, you're never going to look at a tree the same, you know? And so I think that if you can make it, um, I don't know, less technical and more, narrative, I think it really helps because you realize, oh, crows have stories, trees have stories. Um, you know, so I think that trying to, and also all the ologists that I interview have these stories about why they love what they do. Like just talking about the tree guy, this guy, um, 
uh, Casey Clapp. He's a dendrologist up in Portland and he's an arborist and he is like, I'm not, I'm not good enough to be a dendrologist. And I was like, dude, you went to forestry school. You literally like prune trees and consult about trees in Portland for a living. And you're covered in tree tattoos. Like you're a dendrologist, like you're good <laughs> enough, please. He was amazing. He's like covered in like pine cone and like Lorax tattoos. And he's got like a birch on one. It's, he's like amazing. But, um, you know, hearing about why they love what they do gets you hyped for it. You know, like, I think that if someone's like, oh man, you got to listen to this album. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And then you listen to it and you, you're like, oh, it's a pretty good album. But, um, so I think that I try to do that with different science topics where it's like, here's someone who's giving it like a pitchfork 10 review, you know, who here's something that's like rotten tomatoes, 99%, like you're going to love this. So I think like hearing about it through the, eyes of the people who love it really helps you get engaged and helps you think, oh, okay, I'm never going to look at, uh, you know, a certain topic again. Or maybe in the case of like fearology, once you hear this literal fearologist talk about how stress is just fear, you're like, holy shit, like I'm not stressed out. I'm afraid I'm not enough or I'm not... um, You know, you are stressed out and that is, but you know, when you when you start thinking of stressors as being external events instead of the stress you're feeling as an internal fear, you have a lot more control over it once you realize, um, you know, what's actually happening like in your amygdala, but who cares about a lump of your brain if you don't know what the fuck it does. But if you're like, (laughs) there's this thing in your brain called an amygdala, it's the fear center we call it now the screaming almond of terror because it's like an almond shaped uh, thing that just is like, watch the fuck out. Everything sucks. <laughs> Nothing's going to kill you. It's like this thing in your brain. And yeah, when you're stressed out because you're late to your niece's baptism and you're pissed off and da, 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 you're just afraid that your sister's going to be mad at you, you know, like that's what's really going on. And so I just think if you can give more context I think you can get people to appreciate the world around them. And I, I've explained this in meetings before, and I hope that it's, I hope it works, but it's like, okay, if someone's like, hey, we're watching the finale of The Bachelor tonight, he's going to pick between Rebecca and Ashley S. Oh shit, what's going to happen? Like, let's do it. And you watch it and you don't know who Ashley S or whatever, Melissa, whoever is, you don't care. You're like, who cares who he picks? But if you have been watching since the first episode when they got out of the limo, like every eyebrow twitch, every second look, every gasp is like, oh my God, that meant so much. Like, and the stakes feel really important. And so I feel like all that is, is just context and backstory. So if you can give people context and backstory to the world around them, they will care as much as if you were watching the last episode of The Bachelor. You know, it's like they, the world becomes more three-dimensional because it's not just like, oh, there's, there's a tree and there's, there's a bird. It's like, oh, there's a story, like there's a this. And so like, I remember one person left a review and they were like, um, yeah, I was walking down the sidewalk and I saw a snail and I was like, Ooh. And because of the malacology snail episode where they heard about like what snail mucus is made of and how snails, when they want to mate, will shoot calcified love darts into the other's neck that has a hormone and a pheromone that makes them fall in love so that they can mate and they both have dicks. It's just like, what? And so this person was like in the sidewalk, like watching the snail 
and was like, I felt like a stoner because like I suddenly was like so intrigued just being like, holy shit, there's a real snail, you know? But I think that the more context you can give for things, the more you just, you care. And I think that that is hopefully valuable in some way. I don't know. It is. No, there's been episodes where I was like, except the spider one, I have a yeah. <laughs> well, I have a fear of spiders and I'm like, I, I know if I listen to this episode, I also had a very traumatic moment as a kid with spiders, but, uh, what happened? my dad, uh, I had a paper out and I came home. Mm. It was an afternoon paper. So that was good. So I didn't have to okay. get up early, <laughs> but, uh, I came home and my dad had a bike for me in the kitchen and he was like, Hey, now you don't have to walk. You could ride the bike. And mm. And I was totally excited. And he was like, get on the bike. And as I got on the bike from underneath the banana seat, oh, no. if we remember those, <gasps> yes. uh, a nest of spiders broke out. And within like Fuck. seconds, the bike was covered with spiders. Oh my and God. I was in elementary school. I was terrified. And my dad was, my dad <gasps> lost his temper. He was like, just get on that goddamn bike. <laughs> oh no. And I was terrified. Uh, and then, uh, you know, eventually my dad, uh, great. The story even gets better, but like I was oh, terrified. No. Then, uh, my dad hosted off whatever the next day I'm doing my pipe paper out on the bike. Three kids stopped me on the street and the one kid's like, that's my bike. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not. My dad just got this for me. They're like, that's our fucking bike. And they bullied me off the bike and they took oh, it from my me God. and it turned out it was the kid's bike. My dad. <gasps> bought a stolen bike oh i don't think he stole a bike <laughs> right but oh it was so that makes, breaks my heart in a thousand million spiraling pieces <laughs> so i just in so many ways what did you tell your dad uh i went home and i was like some kids told me it said that that my bike was theirs <gasps> and and I, I my brother figured out who they were and we went to their house and i just I, like for years i you couldn't uh, understand, but I, I couldn't imagine what my dad felt like when, after he showed up at that guy's house and found out oh. he purchased a stolen bike or it was just oh. like, it must've, cause you know, we didn't have yeah. a lot of bread. Yeah. So it must've just been this horrible moment for him that I never saw until I was an adult where I was like, Oh, that was probably because anytime my daughter asks for something, I want her to have it partly because yeah. I'm trying to probably heal that wound <laughs> of, yeah. of my spider bike. But I'm like, I don't, you know, that kids don't understand that, understand yeah. where things come from and why they can't have them. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's asked for things that I couldn't provide in the past and it's just, it sucks. Yeah. So you lie. Oh, and now, well, <laughs> the bikes are actually illegal for now. And uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's my, the, that notion of, uh, of like a, of a parent being crushed or embarrassed or ashamed. And then also like losing money on something that they tried to provide. Like that is, that breaks me. Like that's so painful. And my, you know, we didn't, we didn't grow up with a lot of money either. And, um, and my sister and I, I remember once we were, it was like Halloween season and there was, I remember my sister and I were only two years apart. So, you know, we always grew up kind of besties and, um, we saw some Halloween makeup and we were thinking how, how, for some reason we we're like, what if like your mom got that and you didn't really want it and it wasn't very good, but she could barely afford it and she gave it to you and you like didn't appreciate it and it broke her heart. And for some reason, like the notion of, we call it like Halloween makeup of like a 
parent trying to provide something that you didn't want or that they could barely afford. And you didn't know, like that to me is like the biggest, like such not, I mean, there were bigger heartbreaks in the world, but a parent trying and, and like failing and having to stretch a budget. Like I'm, you know, I remember we would, we would go to secondhand stores, you know, for back to school clothes or my mom would get, you know, her work clothes at thrift stores. And, um, and, you know, we lived in this, we lived in a nice neighborhood with a good school, but we rented, you know, we rented like moldy houses in the, in a nice district. And so we went to school with rich kids and, you know, meanwhile we were wearing like Goodwill stuff. Um, but knowing that your parents are like trying to provide and that it's so stressful for them is like, I think it's honestly like, I don't have kids. I'm 43. I'm not, not going to have them. I mean, uh, that I know of, I mean, I'm, my, my body is like, no, we're good here. But, um, but I've always been afraid of what if I have kids and I can't provide for them or what if I disappoint them or what if I'm not a good parent. And I think that like, worrying about that is, is one reason why I was afraid to have kids. You know, I was even afraid to have a dog. I was like, what if I'm not a good dog mom? And meanwhile, I'm like obsessed with my dog, (laughs) but I'm like, you know, it just seems, it seems hard and I'm worried. I I'm just worried. I won't be, wouldn't be good enough. But I think that that, um, that's what keeps a lot of people from making risks that could change their life for the better. And I look back on my life and I think all the times I've taken a risk that I've been really afraid of, I'm always glad I took it. And I, some, I worry a lot of times and I'm like, oh, well, I was like too afraid to have kids and I missed out on like life's greatest joy. And I was like, fuck, just because I was afraid I wouldn't be good at it, you know? And I think that that's a lot of reason. Those are the same reasons that keep people from, you know, doing karaoke or trying stand up or, you know, um, applying for certain jobs is just being afraid of failing, you know? So that's something, but with parenthood, that failure seems like, uh, you're, Oh God, if you fail, you could really fail. But I mean, I, I always feel like when I have friends that have kids and, and seeing how much it's changed their life for the better, it always, I always like live vicariously a little bit through that, you know? So yeah. congrats on having two kids. Well, thank you. Um, I, there's one thing I want to, I want to ask if, um, before we wind this up uh, is, uh, one is how do you feel about the amount of science denial that is happening in our culture <laughs> right now? And why do you think this is so prevalent? Cause it's fucking maddening to me. It's so weird. It's so weird. I mean, and and, and specifically now where people are going to die because of it. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, it's, the internet's funny. The internet has democratized information in a way that is really beautiful where people can tell their stories in ways and get heard in ways that they couldn't before where there aren't as many gatekeepers now. Um, and I think that on the plus side, we are way as a culture, hopefully we're becoming way more sensitive to marginalized voices because we understand, we hear them now. Um, in ways that we haven't before. I think that's really beautiful. I think, um, people making creations, making films, making podcasts, writing books and stuff, that's all awesome. I also think we used to have, um, newspapers, the Tribune, the LA times where people would get their information from the same sources and, the people would be a little bit literally on the same page because they would, everyone would be reading the same newspaper. And then in journalism, those would be presented 
hopefully without bias, and then people could make their own decisions. And I think now the, um, the way that the internet has democratized things, it, it, even facts are so much more polarized than they used to be. Um, and so, I mean, it's, we're living also in a time of like a weird dictatorship with actual propaganda. I mean, I don't think necessarily anyone predicted this kind of regression, you know? Um, and I think that science denial comes from, I, I tried to explain this. Okay. So I was on Bill Nye's podcast, right? He had me on as his first guest and I was so nervous. I was like, I think I had diarrhea that morning. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to fuck this up so bad. But what how, the fuck am I doing? To, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, what an honor and a comment of your achievement. I was like, I was like, I'll record it, but if you don't want to put it up as the first episode, I totally understand. I totally understand if you never air this also. And the fact that it still was the first episode, I was like, what? Um, it was a huge, crazy honor. And I, I still can't believe it, but you know, he was talking, uh, it's weird also just to be like Bill, because I'm used to saying Bill Nye, but Bill Nye was talking about how like, aren't you so, what are you doing? Are you so mad that there's some flat earthers and climate deniers? And, you know, this is pre-corona deniers. And I was like, yeah, but Bill, you can't yell at those people because that is not a way to get them to listen. You have to come at it thinking of fear. And I think a lot of people are afraid. I think that climate denial stems from a fear of just not being able to accept that we have fucked the planet so badly and that jobs in industries that people maybe relied on in certain parts of the country or in certain um, socioeconomic strata, like mining and fracking and coal and things like that, um, that those and in certain agricultural practices, like that those aren't sustainable. And so we got to stop people. What you're saying to people is you have to stop your livelihood. So thanks. So you're fucked. And we're going to take away your, the way of you, how you provide for your children and yourself. And so people see that as a threat. And so I think information becomes a threat to the way that they live their life. And so instead of changing their life, they say, fuck you, that can't be real. So I think that climate denial and, um, I know what the fuck is happening with flat earthers. No idea. But I think that um, certain denials like coronavirus denials, I think is what you're seeing is an expression of fear. You're seeing, I'm too afraid of this pandemic to believe you. I'm too afraid of my business shutting down because the industries are around it or shutting down to believe you. And so I think that when there's like so much anger directed toward people who are science deniers. Like if you look at it as like, we are all kids wearing larger pairs of pants and who can drive. You know what I mean? Like we're all pretty much kids um, who are afraid of things. And I think that usually when someone is really vocally opposed to something, they're just, they're threatened by it. And, um, you know, I think that, I, I just, I feel like you have to listen to it and go like, okay, well, obviously uh, you have to appeal to their fear to get the information in their brains. And like, even with ologies, like for the most part, like 99% of the people that listen to ologies are probably not science deniers and they're probably lean more liberal than conservative. And, but I try to keep it apolitical because I feel like the people that need to hear it are going to be alienated if you 
if you overtly politicize it. I feel like the people that need to hear science most are, and who need to believe science most, um, are the same people who are going to be like, if you are really super overtly bashing Trump, which he deserves completely, then those people are going to be like, I'm out. And I have, and I, you know, and I've seen that, but I do feel like the more people you can get who are told to not trust science scientists to trust scientists, the more you can spread that message around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, you got to kind of seep it in there where you're like, Oh, they're starting to believe scientists more. So I think scientists are also looked at a lot as like the like fun police. And so <laughs> understanding that they're like doing things for like the greater good is important. Yeah. It's just cr- crazy to me because the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court thing and then just like the bars are packed. And I'm like, this is going to mm. be a fucking mm-hmm. disaster. I didn't get to listen yeah. to your most recent episode. Did they talk about that at all? Yeah, we did. I mean, um, I've put out three Corona sodes now and one was like, recorded March 6th, just a few days before California had essentially stayed home orders. And then I did a um, March 31st, all washed hands on deck, which is like how you can help and how you can take care of yourself during during quarantine, um, what you can do to help other people. And then I just put out another Corona. So that was like, okay, as things open back up, like what the fuck is going on? And one patron wrote in, <laughs> their question was just like, so are we fucked or what? <laughs> That was their question to the scientists, which was amazing. But um, yeah, essentially they're like, there's going to be a second wave. It's going to happen. The reason why we flattened the curve is because we've done social distancing. So if you lift social distancing all at once, you're just going to have another spike. Um, And that's expected. That's just what people are going to do. And I think what is really hard for people to understand and what's really hard for scientists to understand is that between five to 85% of people with an active COVID-19 infection are asymptomatic. And the range between five and 85%, like what the fuck kind of statistics are those? You might as well say like between zero and hundred percent, like scientists don't know. So they've settled on 50%. They think 50% of people with COVID have zero symptoms. So that means that is why it's so successful is people think they don't have it and then they give it to someone else and someone else's body may be like, oh, thanks for the virus. I'm now going to have an immune response that shuts down all my organs and kills me at 32. So it varies so much in who has it and they don't really understand why. So I think that's why a lot of people are like, no one even, no one I know even has COVID and chances are of people you know have had COVID. They just didn't know. So um, that's kind of the risk about it. And essentially that's why masks are so important. Um, it's in the upper respiratory passages more than they thought. They thought it was only like down deep in like the lung butter area where like you had to really hack some shit up to spray it on other people. But now they're realizing, oh no, like a sneeze, a cough, an exhale can carry it out of the body. They were like, shit, we didn't know that at the beginning. And so... Um, and yeah, it's it's more contagious than the flu. So I think that people are also seeing the success of flattening the curve and they're like, see, this isn't even that dangerous. And it's like, it's not that dangerous because we've been doing, we've been taking measures against it. So it's tough. I mean, it's the death toll of 9-11 every single day. And, you know, I mean, 40, 30 to 40,000 people a year die in car crashes. Um, 40,000 people a year in the U.S. die of opioid overdoses. And we've had 85,000 deaths since April. 
you know, since March, pardon. So it's big, you know, but, um, and that's, and that's a lot less, that's a lot fewer deaths than, than scientists thought. Um, so the biggest thing is, okay, if things reopen, scientists just say, take it slow, like wear gloves, wear the masks, socially distant for the most part, do what work you can do and try to get back to, you know, things that are pretty essential, but you know, foam parties, raves canceled for a while, you know, get out of, get out of those cruise ships for a bit. <laughs> like it is not over, uh, just cause restrictions are lifted. Yeah. It, I mean, I live in fear cause I'm like, I have an infant, like I have a baby that's yeah. been on. And I'm like, if I bring it home, I don't know what I, I mean, she's mm-hmm. probably very fragile in the immune system. Right, right. She probably does not have a lot of antibodies yet. Yeah, that's why um, I keep throwing handfuls of dirt at her. And that's I, so I, helpful. I rub her on the dogs. Yeah. Has she has she smoked a turd cigar yet for her birth? Did you light up a turd cigar? It's a girl. Yeah, turd cigar. That's, yeah, so we keep doing things we uh, to get her immune system up. I don't know if it's working. No, actually, there is something called the hygiene hypothesis, and they think that people in, um, like, first world countries have more autoimmune disease because they don't have as robust an immune, uh, as robust an immune system because they didn't, they grew up too clean. And so your body is like, holy shit, what's this? I'm going to attack my own body because you don't make a lot of antibodies when you're younger. So the antibody tests too are interesting because, um, your antibodies don't show up until about like 14 days after you're clear of the infection. And the antibody tests are not super reliable because a bunch of different companies are making them. So if you get an antibody test, if you only cleared COVID seven days ago, you may not have detectable antibodies because your body, your factories are still making them in your cells. Um, The COVID tests are only going to show that you have COVID if you have an active infection. So it's kind of, it's like timing's got to be pretty right. Like you, you have to get the nasal, the nasal swab that goes all the way to the back of your throat. Kelly got um, that before she went into oh, the... Oh, really? Yeah, because <gasps> of the baby. But then I... It's like, How I, was it? She said it was fucking brutal. Like it was... <laughs> and the, the woman apologized, but she's like, I'm very sorry before mm-hmm. she did it. <laughs> it's like, she was like, it's going to feel like we're poking your brain. Like it's yeah. that... But I, it's weird because it's like she got the test, but I didn't have to take a test. And I was in the hospital with the baby. Hmm. So That's, I, yeah. it didn't make any sense. I was like, well, what's the fuck? I could have been like, you know, at a, at a rave the night before. Who, who fucking knows? <laughs> well, maybe they figure they're going to be exposed more to her. She's going to be breathing more heavily. There's going to be fluids. She might be, you know, barfing in labor. Did she have a C-section? She did, or she had a C-section. Vaginal. Okay. But like, it's, isn't it nuts too, that they're like, Hey, we're about to carve your guts open and remove a person from you. But I'm really sorry that this swab's going to be so bad. Like, you know, the swab's <laughs> going to be fucking brutal. If they're like, we're about to literally rip you open like a cantaloupe and just, we're going to gut you like a pumpkin, but we're really sorry about this swab. The swab, they have to, they have to touch the back of your throat where the top of your throat meets your sinuses. And I describe it in the episode like a taint, but for your skull, it's like if your <laughs> nasal passage had a taint, they're trying to poke it. But it's like, yeah, it's like six inches past. But I mean, it it's over quickly. But yeah, but that's the deal with the antibody tests. It's like um, they're not, the tests aren't super reliable. 
But, you know, the the biggest thing is just like wash your hands a ton before you eat. Um, you know, don't touch a doorknob and pick your nose afterward. Uh, you know, try to just take precautions because just because certain bands are lifted does not mean that this thing just evaporated into thin air and doesn't exist anymore. So we'll see. All right, Allie, where does, where can people find you? Not that uh, they probably don't already know because you're, well, you're a, a podcast uh, superstar. No. Uh, Ologies is on wherever you find podcasts. It's O-L-O-G-I-G-I-E-S. Do you know how long it took for my computer to not autocorrect it to loogies or eulogies? <laughs> that's the only That's the only way I feel successful. I was like, finally. I think it was like 175 episodes before my business emails, which I'd be like hovering over the send button and be like, I'd love for you to be a guest on loogies. <laughs> it's like why does my computer even know how to spell loogies that's so gross but yeah ologies is where we find podcasts and um and yeah it's just like a different ology every episode so you can just start with the newest one or you can find one you think interests you but one thing i is like the ultimate compliment i get is people being like i didn't think i'd give a shit about this episode and now i'm obsessed and so it's like even if you think it's boring just wait we'll hook you we'll hook you it's true that is one because i've been there's been (laughs) things where i'm like i don't know anything about this or it doesn't like i think it's not going to interest me which is a credit to you because it's like you make it fascinating and you make it fun which is not fucking easy that's a gift that you possess there well thank you sometimes i'm like i'm like why did i pick a podcast trying to make boring things interesting when other people are just like let's get in that dirt and gossip you know I'm like that's so much easier but um but it the point is that there's like weird gossip and relatable shit in pretty much everything you just if you know where to dig um and the scientists do so like yeah so watch out it's amazing how relatable and applicable like literally everything is in your life so yeah i hope people like it it's really it's such an honor to be on this podcast is it's really really so good and i'm so i'm just so proud of you that you brought it back thank you it was either that or stand up and then i was just like it but (laughs) because i was just like feeling like i wasn't doing enough and then finally i i just i kept seeing people i wanted to talk to like the Mm -hmm. indigenous activist and the mm-hmm. Christian Picciolini who used to be a skinhead Nazi and, and the Kenneth Hartman that uh, you, I know you listened to that episode, the guy who was. In, yes. Yeah. And I was just like, I want, and finally I was just like, fuck it. I hate stand up anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> I just was like lost. And I, but I was like, I was just, I had, I just felt like compelled. Like I had no choice. And I was, I'm but so glad I did because it's like, I know. Cause you ended up like way to go on the time machine. Cause you ended up picking a, a format. That's a lot easier to execute right now. Yeah. I, I, I diddled with the idea. I don't know if that's the, but I toyed with the idea of like <laughs> doing something a little bit more intricate with it. But I was like, you know what? I just want to talk to people and, uh, and that's what I'm good at. Uh, oh, you do such a great job. You really do. And tell Kelly, um, thank you for everything. Kelly is my webmaster on my website. So it, without her, there would not be a website. So we, <laughs> I told my therapist that I was friends with you and cause you're, cause I mentioned the fear pot episode and she's like, Oh, I haven't listened to that one yet. And I was like, Oh, you listen to ology. She's oh. like, I love it. And I was like, Oh, she's my friend. And she got nervous. <laughs> oh my God. She got like, exciting. she was like, really? You, you know, Allie? I was like, yeah, I've known Allie for a thousand years. <laughs> oh my 
my God, you have to center this and hi, hi therapist. Yeah. You and we would go d- way back. Uh, yeah. We would, uh, it would come, your episode came up like it would come up weekly and I'd be like, did you listen <laughs> to the fear episode yet? And so you were an intricate part of my therapy. I'm, I'm <laughs> honored to be, I'm honored to barge in. I'm um, honored to, <laughs> to be a party, but this is so just keep up doing awesome things. And I just hope anyone listening, um, especially if they got to the end, if, if I didn't bore them too much, um, just make shit you want to make and do it in your voice and know that there's a, there's a place for what you want to make. Like the, the biggest regrets in my life are, are the risks I haven't taken. So just make stuff and, that's the best thing you can do for the world is like figure out what you, what really lights you up and what you get butterflies about and what you're into and just pursue that fiercely in, in a way that feels true to you. And like, that's always such a compass, you know? So if you feel like you're faking it, then you know that your, your needles pointing perhaps in the, in another direction. So I, that's just something I, I wish I would have been emboldened to do earlier. So I don't know, maybe I'll go have kids now. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe. Thank you, Ms. Ward. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Dwyer. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review it on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Also, go to themattdwyer.com and check out all things Matt Dwyer. My Patreon, merchandise, you name it, it's there. And thank you for supporting podcasting. I hope you come back and listen again. Thank you very much. So many fucking dongles. So many dongles. So sick of the dongle life. (laughs)